Released from prison in September 2003, the first priority of Yu Young Chul as a free man was to round up stray dogs and club them to death. Such practice would make his killing perfect. Prison changes people. Some for the best. The illiterate become readers of books. The sinner gains spirituality, or the person without direction finds a calling. For others, prison changes them for the worst. The environment becomes a breeding ground for racism, a finishing school for thieves, or a galvanizing experience that hardens the convict into a permanent outsider, even when freedom is finally tasted. Yu Young Chul was a changed man when he was released from the Jeonju Detention Center. The prison experience was nothing new since he spent most of his adult life in the South Korean correctional system. He entered prison as a married man and left as a single man. His wife divorced him in May of 2002. That was one factor that's attributed to shifting his criminal mindset. While serving time for robbery and non-consensual sex, you studied the life and crimes of Jong Do Young, another serial killer who murdered nine wealthy victims in Busan, Ulsan, and other cities in the Gyeongam province from June 1999 to April 2000. The murders committed by Jong were simply part of his daytime robberies. At the time of his capture, he was quoted as saying he had an urge to rob houses that were equipped with security cameras. He later said, I may have the devil inside me. He targeted wealthy residences, and if a person was home, they would be stabbed to death. There would be no witnesses. During his spree of robberies and murders, Jong held a woman for ransom, robbed 13 homes, and killed nine people. Some of them were elderly victims. He amassed approximately $100,000 from his break-ins. Zhang Du Young was 31 years old when he began his 10-month killing spree, and he started it as soon as he was released from prison. Following the story of Zhang, Yu felt the wealthy were the causes of all that's wrong with Korean society and were the people to blame for his life's misery. He would beat them like dogs. He planned to kill over a hundred people. Police investigations of the serial killings of Yu Young Chul would later reveal that he was a methodical man. His forethought was extraordinary, and his attention to detail was superb. The physical act of bludgeoning a human was no exception. He needed to practice up for such violence. Yu was experienced with death and violence from his practice on dogs. His weapon of choice was a homemade hammer, and his victims of choice needed to meet certain criteria that would develop into his modus operandi. South Korean government statistics from 2003 show that 50.6% of South Koreans are of Christian faith. There are so many churches in Korea that you can see one every few blocks, and glowing from the steeples are bright red neon crosses. The neon crosses add to a gothic and futuristic cityscape reminiscent of the films The Crow and Blade Runner. Mid-morning on September 24, 2003, Yu rode the subway to Apchujongdon Station, the most affluent district in Seoul. From there, he walked the streets of the Sinza neighborhood, looking for a church. Once he spotted one, he searched nearby for an expensive-looking house, something that would indicate that its owners were wealthy. The house he picked looked easy to break into. A common feature of most two-story houses in Korea is a walled area around the house that forms a courtyard. Most homeowners use this space to cultivate bonsai trees, raise herbs and potted plants, or to have their very own micro-patch of grass amidst the concrete blight of urban soul. The outer wall is usually between shoulder-to-head level, and a two-door gate beckons you inside. The house you cased fit that profile. It was situated at the entrance of an alley near the main road. It had a little garden behind the wall and no security system. It seemed the only people that lived there were an elderly couple. He watched the house for ten minutes before making his move. Wearing gloves, he climbed over the back wall and entered through the front door. He was armed with his homemade hammer and a knife with a six-inch blade. The elderly couple at home was Mr. Lee a 72-year-old honorary Sukmyung University professor, and his 68-year-old wife. Yu went up to the second floor to check if other people were there and found no one. He came down the stairs, 
entered the master bedroom and stabbed the professor in the throat. His wife, Mrs. Lee, screamed in horror, and bizarrely, Yu tried to calm her, telling her everything was okay. When she reached over to hold her bleeding husband, Yu smashed in their skulls with his hammer. He checked to make sure the victims were dead, locked the bedroom door, and left through the front door. Using a towel taken from the house, he tried to clean the blood off his pants, and then he remembered his knife. He left it back in the locked bedroom. Back inside, he kicked open the locked door, fetched his knife, and put it in his bag. Yu noticed he left his footprint on the door, and he was able to partially remove it. To confuse the police, he flung open a wardrobe and tossed the contents about. He stole no money or jewelry. Back at Apchujongdong Station, he cleaned himself up and washed off his bloody tools in the subway restroom. On October 9th, Yu took the subway to Bulguang Station and took a taxi to Gugi Tunnel. He walked until he found a church, and then he found an expensive-looking house in the affluent neighborhood. He noticed there was no security system, and it had a surrounding wall and an inner garden. He watched the movement of people inside through the window and then climbed the wall wearing gloves. He landed in some fine gravel, then walked over it, careful of noise, with his homemade hammer in hand. Perhaps Grandmother Kang heard the front door open as she stepped out of the bathroom and was looking to see who came home. Yu smashed the 85-year-old woman three or four times in the head near the front door. At that moment, the mother came down the stairs into the living room. Yu kicked her twice in the stomach and asked the 60-year-old housewife if there were more people in the house. Mrs. Lee said that her husband and son were upstairs, and Yu hammered her skull until he was certain she was dead. Scrambling up to the second floor, Yu ran into Mr. Go, the 35-year-old son, and forced him to kneel down. Yu hit him eight to nine times until his skull caved in and left him on the stairs. He looked around the second floor but couldn't find Mrs. Lee's husband. While searching the house, Yu found a safe and scattered various contents around to disguise the crime scene as a robbery. He double-checked to make sure no one was still alive, and then he cleaned his footprints with a towel. Yu walked back to the Gugi Tunnel and took a taxi back to Bulguang Station. On October 16th, Yu hopped on the subway to Solung Station. He walked the Samsung neighborhood of the Gangnam District, known as one of Seoul's wealthier areas, until he found a church and then scouted a house with a big garden and a surrounding wall that bordered a narrow alley. It was around one o'clock in the afternoon. Like before, he went over the wall wearing gloves and approached the front door. At that moment, Mrs. Yu, the 69-year-old wife of a millionaire, came out to fetch the mail. As she went back inside, Yu crept into the house right behind her. He threatened her with his knife and asked if anyone else was home. No one was, and he dragged her into the bathroom and hammered Mrs. Yu three to four times to the head. He scattered items in the master bedroom to confuse the police, and he wiped the bloodstains off his shoes and cleaned the smeared footprints from the floor. By this time, his pattern of killing emerged. Next time, however, it wouldn't be exactly the same. He left the house and walked to Gangnam Ward office station. On November 18th at 11 in the morning, Yu took the subway to Hansong University Station. While looking for a house near a church, he noticed a small police station in an alley and decided it would be a prime place to commit his crimes because the residents would perceive the area as safe. He theorized their guard would be down since a police station was nearby. Again, it was a house in a nice neighborhood, in Haihuadong, and it had a surrounding wall and a small garden within. Like the death raids before, he confirmed emergency exits in case of trouble and watched the house for movement. He cleared the back wall wearing gloves and used a gas pipe to climb down. A baby cried from inside the house, so he knew at least two people were home. He entered through the front door and then went up to the second floor but didn't find anyone. As he was coming down the stairs, the 53-year-old housekeeper, Ms. Bay, saw him and asked who he was. Brandishing his knife, he ordered her into the master bedroom. There he found the owner of the house, Mr. Kim, an 87-year-old man lying on his bed. Yu immediately hammered his skull. Terrified, Ms. Bay held the baby tight in her arms and Yu pried the infant from her. 
He put the baby on the sofa and covered the child with a blanket, then bludgeoned the woman's head with his hammer. Yu rummaged around the house and found a safe on the second floor. He used a golf club and pruning shears to break it open. In the process, he cut himself. Worried that the police could track him by a DNA test, he set fire to the room. Covered with bloodstains, he snatched a black jacket and put it on and left the house. He watched the house from a distance for 30 minutes, unable to see any flames. A woman that looked like a family member entered the house, and that was enough. Yu left the scene, not remembering if he took a bus or taxi, not knowing he left behind a set of footprints and his image captured from behind on a closed-circuit TV camera. Yu was born on April 18, 1970, into a blue-collar family in the village of Waha in Gochang County in the North Chola province. He was an unexpected baby. His parents didn't want him, and years later, he was told by his grandmother that his mother considered killing him. His parents separated, and in his early years, he was raised by his grandmother. When he was six years old, he moved to Seoul to live with his father. His father was a Vietnam War veteran, and he returned with a large savings from his soldier's pay. He gambled most of it away on poor business speculations. In Seoul, he ran a comic book shop, a place where people could rent stacks of comic books to devour in one sitting. The Mapo district, where he lived, was a poor area with no electricity and running water, and residents had to get water from a public well. Yu had two older brothers and a younger sister. One brother eventually ran away from home. His father had a replacement for his mother, and the stepmother savagely beat Yu's sister. She never hit Yu because he unnerved her so much from staring at her for hours with contempt and hate. When he was eight years old, Yu and his sister ran away from home to go live with their mother, who also lived in Mapo. Yu attended the Seoul Gongduk Elementary School, and records indicate he was quiet and polite, always using the honorific form of address when speaking to his elders. He was responsible at such a young age because adults weren't around much, and he took charge of the household chores. Poverty was a part of his life, and it deeply affected him. School kids brought their own lunch to school in those days. Once he only brought a glob of sticky rice mixed with bean paste for lunch, and his schoolmates mocked him by saying, you brought shit for lunch. Sometimes he missed his father and he visited him. Around that time, his father had broken up with his second wife and deteriorated into an alcoholic. When his father died in a car accident, Yu focused his academic energies enough to be one of the top students in his class. After his arrest, Yu told investigators that when he was a boy, there was a large, expensive house near his home and he yearned to live in such a place. He was insecure about being from a poor family, and that later morphed into his eventual hatred toward the wealthy. The rich, he thought, were to blame for his miserable life. He entered middle school in 1984. Although Yu claims he has an IQ of 140, his school records indicate it's around 95 to 100. Early on, Yu felt drawn to the arts. He has many scars on his left hand from wood-carving mishaps. He's colorblind but likes painting and reading poetry. He loved to sing, and at one time he was in a gospel group at a church. With his friends, he formed a singing group called Evergreen to compete in a talent contest. He was a good all-around athlete, but he sometimes passed out from overexertion. His friends speculated that it was from a meager diet that didn't provide enough energy. He applied to go to a high school that specialized in the arts, but failed to get in and instead ended up at a technical high school in 1987. During his second year of high school, Yu stole a guitar and a Sony cassette player from a neighbor's house. It was his first crime, and he was put in a juvenile detention center. He never graduated from technical high school. In 1991, Yu stole over $500 of cash and a camera and spent 10 months in jail. In 1993, he happened to find a car with the keys in the ignition. He stole it and got an eight-month sentence. In 1998, he forged some official documents and impersonated government officials. He was arrested. On Christmas 1991, he met Miss Huang, a masseuse. She was the woman he would marry. It was the happiest time of his life, but it didn't last long. His landlord raised his rent, and in order to make up the difference, 
he broke into an office and tried to steal a camera and some cash, but was caught by a security guard. When his mother visited him in jail, he asked her to take care of his new wife and son. He dreamed that when he got out, he could build a house for his family and spend time with his boy. There are many references to you having epilepsy to some extent. From 1993 to 1995, he received treatment as a day patient at the National Mental Hospital in the Jungok neighborhood of Seoul. There's speculation that the blackouts he experienced while playing sports as a youth could have been epileptic seizures. Lee Eun-young, the author of Murder Addiction, a book about Yu Yang-chul, has speculated that he has manic depressive disorder. His second brother was a manic depressive, and in 1994, he got drunk and committed suicide at the age of 32. During his killing spree, Yu was 33 years old and felt that his end might be near, that his fate was to die at a young age like his father and brother, and it heightened his impetus to kill more people. In March of 2000, he was arrested for a 15-year-old girl, and that was enough for his wife. She could overlook the thievery because it paid the bills, but this was unforgivable. She divorced him in 2002 as he served his sentence in the John Jew Detention Center and also included that he be barred from any visitation rights to his son. By this time, Yu had 14 criminal convictions for a total of 11 years in prison. His crimes ranged from fraud, theft, battery, and non-consensual sex. When he got out of prison on September 11, 2002, he visited his mother living in the old Gongjok neighborhood in Mapo and he was looking for a place to call his own. In order to make enough money to live on, he would cruise Seoul's numerous red-light districts and extort cash from hookers and pimps using a police ID that he forged himself. Yu settled down in a studio apartment in the area where he grew up. He put down approximately $4,000 as a key money deposit and paid roughly $450 in rent each month. Apartment 203 was in a small commercial building in the Nogosan neighborhood of Mapo. He was 50 steps away from a small police station and 200 steps away from a 24-hour convenience store where the clerks thought of him as a nice guy. He kept his apartment in immaculate condition. His clothes hung neatly on a freestanding rack and his personal possessions were few. In his apartment, he watched movie clips and porn on his personal computer. In the drawer of his computer desk, there was the Korean DVD Public Enemy, a story about a police officer hunting a serial killer that killed his own mother and father, and the American films Very Bad Things and Normal Life. His bookshelf near his bed revealed more about him. Yu kept a scrapbook, and it held newspaper cutouts of toys he wanted to buy his son, advertisements for pistols, a list of pop singers and their songs, and scribbled notes about cars, computers, and music equipment. There was an art album stuffed with sketches of female nudes and portraits, and it's evident he's highly talented in the Japanese manga style of drawing. Also on the bookshelf was his son's notebook filled with crayon pictures. When Yu stepped outside of his apartment, he picked up calling cards off the ground. They're everywhere in Seoul, stuffed under windshield wipers, tucked in mailboxes, and seemingly tossed about on any flat surface. There are so many around that most people cast them aside as litter, on the card is always an erotic photo of a beautiful woman promising hot sex and a number to call. In November, around the time he killed the elderly man and his housekeeper, Yu called one of those numbers. It was a phone sex establishment. He got to know a woman there, Ms. Kim, and it seemed like she was interested in him. Eventually, their relationship reached a point where Yu proposed to her, but by this time, she learned of his criminal past, mental instability, and divorce, and she flatly rejected him. For you, it was stunning. His divorce made him bitter, and he even entertained the idea of killing his ex-wife, but dropped it, thinking of his 11-year-old son. He dwelled on the jobs of his ex-wife and girlfriend. The former was a masseuse, and the latter was a phone sex worker. In January, Yu was arrested for theft at a sauna and briefly held at the Sodeman police station. They did not check his criminal record, which would have revealed Yu served a total of 11 years in prison for 14 different crimes of fraud, assault, and theft. They released him thinking he was a petty thief and failed to connect him to the spate of killings throughout the metropolis. 
It could have been his release from police custody in January that gave him the confidence to start killing again. On February 6th, at 7 p.m., Yu took a taxi to the Imundong neighborhood and hunted for a victim. Yu approached Ms. John, 25, in front of a restaurant that was 20 meters from a busy main four-lane street. He thought she looked like a prostitute. It was a quiet spot in an alley and sleet was falling. He asked her where she was going. I'm going shopping, she said. He showed her a forged police ID card and asked her to go to a bar with him, but she didn't trust him. You're not a cop, you crazy bastard, she replied. Enraged, you went after her. She tried to run away from you, almost reaching a restaurant door, and she fell down, yelling for help. He stabbed her five times in the chest. No longer was he interested in lethal rages against the rich. He now hated the young, attractive women who worked in the sex trade. Yu refocused on new targets, women in Korea's enormous sex industry. According to the Korean Institute of Criminology, South Korea's sex trade was valued at $20.4 billion, making up 4.1% of the gross domestic product, larger than the utility industries. Prostitution is illegal in South Korea. However, the sex industry is ubiquitous. From the smallest of country towns to the large red-light districts in Seoul, sex is for sale. Sex workers range the gamut from high school girls soliciting sex in internet chat rooms so they can make enough money to buy a new cell phone, to housewives doing it to make extra cash for their children's cram school tuition. Others hustle to pay off credit cards, and many become sex slaves under cruel systems of indentured servitude to pimps that buy and sell the women and keep them imprisoned in brothels. In 2004, South Korea was listed in the Trafficking in Persons report published by the U.S. State Department. Outlets that provide sexual services take creative forms. There are massive red-light streets of Seoul's Miari, Chongyangni 588, Yongdungpo, Busan's Wanweldong and Texas Street, and the Yellow House in Incheon. There are love hotels that charge by the hour, and scattered throughout every city are barbershops with double candy strip poles that indicate they provide sexual services. Usually nearby are coffee shops where one can get a ticket for a woman. The nightlife is loaded heavily with sex venues like room salons or business clubs, where orgasms are used to finalize business deals, along with karaoke singing rooms that also provide something extra for their customers. Often health-related businesses are fronts for prostitution, such as saunas and steam bathhouses, and sports massage parlors. South Korea is a country where nearly every man, woman, and child has a cell phone, and the cell phone has revolutionized the Korean sex industry. With the spontaneous and fleeting nature of the customers, accessible prostitutes were only a phone call away. Pimps would call in new appointments immediately, text message the next rendezvous address, and check the prostitute's whereabouts at any time. All sex venues became outcall hubs that could provide sexual services immediately. In Korean, Junhua Bang simply means phone room. It's either a phone sex service similar to 1900 numbers in the US or an actual place. Small, dark rooms with a telephone, a TV and video player loaded with porn, a lounge chair, some tissues, and a memo pad. The customer usually pays by the hour, enters the room, and waits for the phone to ring. A woman calls and they chat, and there's always the possibility of meeting the woman later. One statistic from a Donga Daily newspaper report cited that 57% of the contacts have sex within four hours. Yu Young Chul finally understand the anonymous nature of the phone sex room. That would be his contact point, and that is where he would find the same kind of woman that rejected him and made him feel worthless. He would call them and persuade them, and he would make them pay. There were thousands of them out there waiting for his call. In March, he called a phone sex parlor and had a woman sent over to his Mapo apartment. He hit her head with his hammer and then cut her body into 18 pieces. It worked for him. He didn't even have to leave his house except to dispose of the body. He hauled the dismembered woman to a small mountain trail beyond Sogang University and buried her there. Yu purchased some counterfeit Viagra pills from a vendor in the Huang Hak Dong Goblin Market. 
It's a warren of some 500 shops and hundreds of street vendors that sell everything from old LP records, live snakes, used clothes and second-hand appliances to plates of stuffed pig intestines for the hungry shopper. A few days later, on the evening of April 13th, you returned to shake down Mr. Ahn, the vendor that sold him the fake Viagra. You posed as a police detective and flashed his forged ID. He threatened him and tried to solicit a bribe. Ahn didn't trust him, and he said he would make an inquiry at the nearby police station. You wrestled him into Ahn's van and handcuffed him inside. He drove back to Mapo and parked near his house. He then put his hammer, knife, and gloves into a bag, went back to the vehicle, and drove to an underground parking lot of a nearby hospital. He then killed Ahn inside the van. You walked home and washed off the bloodstains and brought another knife along with him. Back at the van, he cleaned the blood mist off the windows. At 1 a.m., you drove to Walmi Island near Incheon, 25 kilometers west of Seoul. Walmi Island was built on reclaimed land and was connected to the mainland to create a tourist spot. It has a gaudy, carnival-like atmosphere and a street of raw fish restaurants, numerous cafes, curbside gugaw hawkers, and four amusement parks. Cement piers extend out into the harbor, where ferries, cruise ships, and fishing boats anchor under hordes of seagulls. He parked near an abandoned gas station and sawed off Ahn's hands. He then placed them in a plastic bag and tossed them into the riprap rocks that embanked the pier. You torched the van and backed away into the shadows to watch it burn. Firefighters eventually arrived, and he slipped away from the area and got a taxi. Thinking the cab driver might remember his face, he got off at Bupyong Station and took another taxi home. The women came to him. He called them up like a butcher calls the stockyard. It was much easier than roaming the streets looking for churches and houses, and much less risky than the impromptu murders of the Imun Dong woman and the fake Viagra vendor. He called them, and they came. Between early April and mid-July, you murdered ten women. In early April and in late April, two women died. In early May and mid-May, he killed two more. He claimed three more lives in June. On July 1st, he killed a woman, and another on July 9th. He killed the last one on July 13th. Nearly every case was identical. They all occurred at night. He called the phone sex rooms and persuaded the woman to come to his home or to meet at a place where he could later bring her home. He offered her money for her time and services, although he later claimed he never had sex with any of his victims for fear of DNA tracking. Once at his apartment, he let them go to the bathroom as he readied his hammer. You hit their heads, and their heads would be the first to come off, and he would dismember the rest later. He saved the victim's cell phone so he could avoid using his own number for later calls. Always careful, you shaved off the skin of the victim's fingertips. In South Korea, all citizens have a national identification number, similar to a social security number, and are fingerprinted by the government. As he chopped apart the bodies, he stuffed the pieces into plastic bags, and then he cleaned maniacally. A neighbor later remarked that she sometimes heard the sound of running water late into the night. He knew of a place up near Bongwon Temple, a brushy hillside, and he headed there with a loaded backpack. Each body required two trips. He buried the human remains in shallow graves, and later on, he marked them to avoid burying bodies in the same spot. By four o'clock in the morning, he was finished. He deviated from his regular routine. On July 1st, at a love hotel in the Yok-Sam neighborhood in the Gangnam district, he called up a woman for a massage. When she arrived, he coerced her to his apartment using his forged police ID. Once back at his place, she met the same demise as the others. She was the first woman he killed that he'd called on the pretext of a massage. The previous victims were from the Jeonhua Bangs. The last two victims arrived from a massage parlor also, one on July 9th and the very last on July 13th. South Korea is well connected to the cyber world. Gossip on internet message boards, media reports, and one news documentary covered the story of women being murdered around Seoul. Two nicknames for the string of murders happening around the city came about. The Thursday Night Killer 
and the rainy night murderer. By early July, journalists in Seoul were picking up on the chain of murders happening around the metropolis, and some were speculating it was more than random, unrelated homicides. On July 9th, the Jun Ang Daily ran a prescient story by reporter Bei Nopil. Seoul murders. Serial killer at work? A series of unsolved and apparently motiveless murders in Seoul is raising fears that a serial killer is stalking women. In southwestern Seoul, four stabbing murders and one knife attack occurred on rainy evenings, and four of the five events happened on a Thursday night. All of the attacks occurred within the vicinity of four kilometers. None of the attacks indicated that the killer was a sexual predator or a thief. No items were stolen from the victims, and none had non-consensual sex. In Guanacu, a high school girl was stabbed ten times on February 26th at 2 in the morning and survived the experience. The second attack occurred on April 22nd when a female university student died from a knifing in the Guro district. Another body of a female university student turned up at Borami Park with stab wounds. The last attack was on July 8th when a 10-year-old girl and her 31-year-old mother were discovered stabbed to death in their home in Guanjin-gu with no sign of burglary. There was a vibe in the air. Women were going home earlier than usual at night. Sales of pepper spray, gas guns, and security alarms shot up when the news stories came out. Prostitutes were aware something was happening and warned each other to be careful. Only two of the prostitutes that you killed were ever reported as missing to the police. Police admitted that they had little to go on, citing lack of evidence or witnesses. Adding to the climate of fear in the city was a news documentary about the string of murders. After that was aired, internet message boards flooded with gossip and hearsay, such as women should avoid wearing red or white on rainy days or on Thursdays. Much of this was influenced not by facts, but by the Korean thriller Memories of Murder. The film, directed by Bong Joon-ho, garnered critical praise when it was released in 2003, roughly a year before Yoo Young-chul's killing spree, and it was still fresh in everyone's mind. It's based on a true story of murders that spanned a 10-year period in Hwasong in the late 1980s. The killer leaves scant evidence for the police to work with, and the murders happen on rainy nights. The female victims were wearing red and white at their time of death. The murders remain unsolved to this day. The body count kept rising, and the police were literally clueless. On Thursday, July 15th, Yu was arrested for beating a prostitute at a love hotel in the Yuksam neighborhood in southern Seoul. The police had no idea they had captured the killer. Yu pretended to have a gimp leg and feigned epileptic twitches. That was enough to generate sympathy from the police, and they uncuffed Yu during interrogation. When they weren't paying attention, Yu escaped. Yu went to visit his mother. He must have known his killing spree would soon end. His mother later recounted, I met my son on July 15th. He just said, I want to die. I want to die. I wasn't able to say anything. I cried. The local pimps operating the Jonhua Bangs knew something was happening. They consulted each other and learned that women who received a call from a certain cell phone number didn't return when they went out to visit the client. Mr. A, a phone sex pimp, passed this information to Yang Pulju, a police officer he knew. Yang told him if the mysterious cell phone number appeared again to let him know. Around one or two in the morning, another pimp got a call from the suspicious number, and he called Mr. A. A woman had already been sent to meet the client, but Yu called back saying he rejected the woman because she was too old and ugly. He demanded they send a prettier, younger one. Mr. A called Yu back and said he would be sending a more attractive woman as soon as he could, that Yu would have to wait a moment. It was a delaying tactic to gain him time to call the police and organize a plan. Mr. A called Yang and told him what was going on. They rounded up a woman to send to Yu as bait, and they headed to the meeting place behind the Sinchon Grand Mart. Mr. A brought his friend, two employees, and three other pimps. Around four in the morning, they met Officer Yang and his colleague, Officer Kim. It was raining when the woman's cell phone rang. Yu told her to take an alley on her left, another on her right, 
and the directions he gave made it sound like he was suspicious. The group of men fanned out around the area to keep an eye out for you. Within ten minutes, you emerged from a dark alley and was spotted by Mr. A, who asked, Are you Yu Young Chul? The man didn't answer. Mr. A and his associates jumped you and patted him down for the incriminating cell phone. It wasn't there. They pinned his arms and marched him over to their car to take him to the police station. As soon as they started the engine, they noticed he was chewing on something odd. They wrestled him into submission as officers Yang and Kim arrived. They removed some partially chewed phone sex calling cards from Yu's mouth. Police also found handcuffs and a forged police ID card in Yu's possession. Once he was in police custody, Yu confessed to everything. With roots going back to 889 AD, the Bongwang Temple is nestled in a wooded valley of An Mountain. It's known for the Yong Sanjay ceremony, a reenactment of Buddha's Sakyamuni's Lotus Sutra on Spirit Vulture Peak. It's a majestic Buddhist ritual that's meant to awaken unity and peace for both the living and the dead. An Mountain is covered with planted cherry trees and wild pine and locust trees. Thick forsythia bushes are overgrown on the slopes that are interlaced with trails for the numerous hikers, joggers, and picnickers. On a weekend, it's impossible to find a secluded spot with so many people out to enjoy the greenery. Even the deepest parts of the forest are probed when housewives raid the hillsides to collect herbs in the spring. Nobody smelled the decomposing bodies in the summer heat. It was one of the hottest summers on record in Seoul. In the coming week, daytime temperatures would hover around 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Koreans called the weather tropical nights, a time when the mercury doesn't drop below 77 degrees during the night. In such weather, the human body decays rapidly. Enzymes destroy the tissues, and the body putrefies, giving off a smell that's foul and unforgettable. Throughout crime literature, police officers, investigators, and doctors are well quoted about the putrid stink of a dead human body. Often they say it's a smell they never forget. Yu led the police to where he buried the bodies of the women he killed. Before the temple grounds of Bong Wan, there was a small hamlet that borders a quieter, secluded world and the frenetic cement jungle of Seoul. It's a neighborhood where the traditional tile-roof houses still exist under the canopies of Zelkova trees, and Buddhist paper lanterns are strung up on the narrow lanes that lead up to the temple. There was a large building on the hillside that's somewhere in the state of being semi-abandoned and being renovated. Behind the building is a small rivulet flowing with milky, polluted water and littered with rubbish. The sides of the small stream are embanked with cement and other cement chutes flow into it, collecting runoff rainwater. A steep ravine descends into the small stream, and its mouth is channeled with rough-hewn stone blocks covered with moss. It's brushy and overgrown, and piles of rotting deadwood are about from past floods. As you directed the detectives where to dig, police unearthed the plastic bags of body parts in various stages of decomposition. There were many news reporters covering the story. You looked at one of the cameras and said, Women shouldn't be sluts, and the rich should know what they've done. He patted me on the back while removing my liver to eat. An old Korean proverb about being tricked or conned. The Korean verb malkda translates to make clear, refresh, or purify. That was the reason you gave when asked why he ate the livers of his victims. He said, it made my mind and body refreshed. In Korean folk medicine, the liver is a symbol of bravery and vigor. He did it on four occasions with the livers of four different victims. Or so he said. Like much of the case, police were unable to confirm if he actually did eat human flesh. The story of Yu Young Chul was on the front page of the newspapers and was the main story of all the TV news programs around the country. On the 19th, two fan club websites popped up on Dom and Navar, two Korean internet portals. One of the websites referred to you as the coolest murderer. Membership in the fan clubs rose quickly because people had to register in order to post messages of outrage and curse the webmaster with abusive language. Shortly after, both portals closed down each website. Also around this time, 
phone sex rooms reported a booming business from the accidental publicity. The forensic examiner, Dr. Bak Hui Giong, asked, how could a human being be so evil? While doing the autopsies, she closely observed the victim's smashed heads and their mutilated bodies. She surmised that it wasn't just any murder, but killing out of pure anger and rage. It was about hate. To her, it was insane. As you confessed bits and pieces of his story, the police scrambled to corroborate what he said. The only material they were working with was what he told them, and the dead bodies pointed out by you. From particles of human flesh taken from the hammer, DNA tests matched some of the recovered victims. From measuring Yu's feet and shoe size, police were able to determine that the footprints left at the Haihua Dong scene were from the same person. Yu informed the police that he had kept a written record of each killing, but it was not found in the apartment search, and nothing on Yu's computer hard drive revealed anything useful. Police admitted they had scant physical evidence that linked Yu with his self-confessed murders. On Friday, at the 3rd Criminal Division of the Seoul District Public Prosecutor's Office, more details of Yu's murders emerged from his confessions to the police. On July 25th, Yu told the police that he was responsible for the murder of the woman in Imun Dong on February 6th. Yu kept changing his story. He told investigators that he murdered 26 people, six more than the original 20 he confessed to. He also said he killed people in Incheon and in the southern city of Busan. He gave no other details or dates. Police had no way of confirming any of this. Traditionally, South Korean courts have favored the prosecution, but in recent years, more judges are requiring more tangible evidence that can prove their charges against the accused. A criminal psychologist that interviewed Yu recounted that he was antisocial and distrusted the mores of society, and that Yu showed little guilt or remorse for his murders. Yu claimed that, given the chance, he would have killed 100 more women. The police assembled their charges, that included 21 counts of murder, along with burglary, impersonating a police officer, arson, and improperly disposing of corpses. With the evidence and confessions gained from Yu, they could not link him to the knife murders of the rainy night Thursday night killer. Those cases still remain unsolved. It took police only 10 days to finalize their investigation. On Monday, July 26th, as police prepared their case to turn over to the prosecutors, Yu was transferred to the prosecutor's office. Outside was a mass of reporters, photojournalists, and rubbernecking pedestrians. A woman known as Ms. Zhang, a 51-year-old mother of one of his victims, screamed, The police's insincere and incompetent investigation killed my daughter. If you arrested him earlier, my daughter would not have died. Holding an umbrella and storming up the cement stairs, she rushed at you and an escorting police officer promptly laid a swift sidekick to her chest, and she crashed down the steps. The scene was captured on a live television broadcast and caused outrage throughout the country. The Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency responded the next day with a public apology, proffering the excuse that the umbrella was mistaken for a weapon. Hugh Jun Young, the chief of police, stated, Because of our mistake in not realizing it was the victim's mother, we again hurt the saddened, mourning family. We will make measures to protect the victims and their families. One of the police officers involved said, I tried to stop her from coming towards you. It was not my intention to hurt her. Other officers that escorted you that day claimed the incident was a setup orchestrated by reporters for Japan's Fuji TV. They persuaded Ms. Jong to rush at you and yank off his face mask in order to get some good footage of the serial killer's face. A staffer at Fuji TV laughed at the claims. While in custody, Yu complained to the National Human Rights Commission of Korea. He claimed his basic rights were violated because he was kept in chains, unable to use the toilet, and a closed-circuit television camera kept surveillance on him 24 hours a day. His complaints garnered little public reaction, and the NHRCK stated they had no intention of looking into his claims. On July 29th, Yu refused to talk to the police and went on a hunger strike. For the prosecution team, this wasn't any good. Nearly their entire case was built on what Yu confessed to them. Their information pipeline dried up when Yu decided to shut up.
criminal investigations in South Korea are often dependent on extracting confessions. Admitting that they garnered little physical evidence of their own except for what you spoon-fed them, the prosecution team scrambled to assemble all advanced investigation methods they could access. Yu first appeared in court on September 6th and admitted his guilt. He described how he dismembered the corpses and said that he killed two more people in addition to the 21 counts he was charged with. After recounting his gruesome details, he said, I gave up my life. You, the judges, are not the kind of persons who can punish my sins. You carried an air about him that made it seem like nothing could hurt him and that he was beyond care and he cared nothing for his defense. He said, I wish this was the last day of the trial. I refuse to appear in court next time. Before he left the courtroom, you addressed the audience and said, I would like to apologize to the victims for what I've done. I'm sorry. I sent them away in peace. Korean law doesn't allow criminal suspects to boycott their court hearings. Yu was brought back to appear at the Seoul District Court on September 20th. I don't want to attend the trial anymore, he said and expressed his distrust toward the police, prosecutors, and judges. One of the three judges admonished Yu, saying, It's not up to you to decide whether you attend the trial or not. During the hearing, Yu revealed that he murdered five more people that included an adolescent and a pregnant woman. He also said he previously fabricated his story. According to him, the police promised to protect his son until university age, so I lied to them about killing a woman in Imundong, which I didn't do. As the court was about to adjourn, Yu leaped over the railing bar and sprang towards the judges, yelling that he wasn't going to attend the next hearing. The judges scrambled out of their chairs, and just as Yu reached the desk, he slipped and was bum-rushed by twenty guards, then handcuffed and dragged from the courtroom. Yu passed on two notes to a reporter and a prison guard. In them, he wrote that he felt sorry for the victim's families, and he repented for his murders. There were hints about ending his life. Prison authorities tightened the 24-hour watch on Yu's cell. On Sunday, October 3rd, using electrical wire removed from a wall-mounted fan, Yu tried to strangle himself around midnight Monday morning. The suicide attempt was stopped immediately. Yu's previous vows to not appear in court again were partially realized. Scheduled for a two o'clock court appearance on October 4th, he passed a note to a prison guard to be submitted to the Seoul Central District Court. He wrote that he had nothing more to say and that he refused to attend. This left authorities a bit perplexed. Korean criminal code allows for the court to try and convict a person in absentia, but rather than push the issue over use temper tantrum in the largest criminal case of the year, they postponed the trial until the following week on October 11th. As the numerous court proceedings progressed, Yu exploded again in a courtroom rage. On October 25th, a person in the audience swore at him as he entered the courtroom. Yu snapped and lunged for the spectator, and ten guards plowed into the brawl. The only things damaged were Yu's ego, a shaken courtroom, and two smashed wooden chairs. Yu was taken out of the courtroom to let the atmosphere settle, but before he was allowed to return, he was forced to sign a written statement, I will not cause any further agitation. As if an experienced and condemned killer could care about such a childish promise. Back in the courtroom, Yu stared at the families of the victims and said, They were abnormal women. They deserve to be caught. On November 29th, prosecutors demanded the death penalty for Yu Young Chul. As a means of execution, South Korea hangs those condemned to die. They reiterated that Yu ceased to be a normal member of society when he started his motiveless killing spree, and they reminded the court of Yu's previous statement that he would have killed 100 more people if he had the chance. They also noted that during the trial proceedings, when the victim's family members were present, Yu made the statement that his victims deserved to die. Yu's response to the death penalty request was, My actions cannot be justified. If we live in a society where people like me can live a good life, there will not be another Yu Young Chul. I'm thankful for the prosecutor's request for the death penalty. I will be repenting what I've done until I die. On December 13th, Yu was stoic as the verdict was handed down, and he stared as the judge read the decision. With most of the 20 victims being women and the elderly, 
use case is a serious crime that has no parallel in the nation's history. The Seoul Central District Court affirmed capital punishment for Yu Young Chul for 20 of 21 murder charges against him. We sentenced him to death, having considered his motive, the method of murder, and the shock his killing spree gave to the bereaved families and to the public, even though he felt sorry for the bereaved families of the victims at the end of the trial. The court acquitted him for the murder of the 24-year-old Imun Dong woman, stating there was a lack of objective evidence except for Yu's own vague confession, a testimony that Yu later repeatedly denied. Another charge of theft at a sauna in Seoul was dropped as the court cited the statements given by witnesses to be flawed. The prosecutors objected to the not-guilty decision of the Imun Dong killing. They reasoned that since Yu confessed to the murder without interrogation or torture, then it must be true, adding that there were details of the story that only the killer would know. Senior prosecutor Lee Dong Ho said, Nobody forced him to say that he had killed the woman in Imun Dong. We're taking this to court again. Court maneuvers were made. The prosecution stated it would appeal to a higher court on the Imun Dong murder case. The defense attorney of Yu Young Chul would appeal the guilty verdicts of the Korean Supreme Court, while political machinations in the National Assembly argued the abolition of the death penalty. Yu departed the courtroom, clad in a blue prison tunic and escorted by guards. His demeanor was detached and neutral. He would be the first person to be hanged in South Korea since the mass executions on December 31, 1997, when 23 convicts were put to death. While awaiting his appeal in the Seoul Detention Center, the National Assembly debated the abolition of capital punishment. Previous attempts to change the law failed in 1999 and 2001. The pro-con arguments for the death penalty resembled those around the world, and South Korea was no different. Legislators cited capital punishment's ineffectiveness in deterring crime and the lack of humanity shown by the government. Supporters of the death penalty cited the need to protect the public and that it was a necessary evil. The South Korean public is divided on the issue. One survey revealed that two-thirds of the population supports capital punishment. In another poll, people were surveyed after a television miniseries about a hero facing execution, and the statistics reversed. On June 9th, Yu heard the final verdict of the Supreme Court. His death sentence was confirmed. The prosecution's appeal of the Imun Dong case was rejected. Seventeen days later, the National Assembly received an official letter from the Ministry of Justice that criticized the current legislative motions to abolish capital punishment. Within the letter, there was indirect insinuation of Yu Young Chul. If brutal murderers are not condemned to capital punishment, then it will go against the public's feeling of justice and victims' grudges, and their feeling of private revenge will increase. Yu Young Chul is on death row with 60 other convicts.